Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. All right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Mark 14. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we have been working through Mark's gospel account. And uh, his is very fast-paced. He focuses mainly on the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry and uh, doesn't spend a lot of time in the birth narrative or in the resurrection narrative. And uh, so it's been a very fast-paced read. I'll put that there. i got some things to do up here. Sorry. Um, while I'm getting myself my little desk area ready up here, um, you know, a lot of times when you're reading through the story of Jesus or talking to people about him, uh, people will say things like, well, you know, Jesus wasn't real. And so we, we start talking to them about the reality of Jesus and his earthly life and earthly ministry. And people have, they give reasons. And a reason I've, I've heard before was, well, you know, there were a lot of people during that time period who claimed to be the Christ or to be Christ. And Jesus is just one other person during that time period who claimed to be the Christ. And the response is, well, tell me about one of those people. And like you, most people can't tell us about any of those other people who claim to be Christ. Do you know why? Because they were crushed by Rome and other people. Not a single one of them is memorable because they didn't do anything beyond the claim and then getting crushed because of it. But Jesus is different. We know him today because he wasn't just taking on Rome. He wasn't just taking on the Jewish establishment. He was taking on the sin of the cosmos. And he died and came back and was resurrected and was seen over a period of days by his followers and people who would recognize him and see that he truly is the Christ. So what we're looking at this morning is a true story, a real story, and a very relevant story for all of us. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 12 through 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, truly I say to you one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. 
And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's holy word. He's given it to us because he loves us and every word of it is true. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we read it this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are grateful. We're grateful that we have a record in our hands of your life, of your death, and of your resurrection. And our prayer this morning is that you would take this passage and that you would help us to understand why you're telling us this today. Of all days, this is the sermon that we're that I'm preaching and that these folks are listening to. What is it going on in our lives where we need to hear this today? Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, would you bless me? Um, I am a fragile person uh, in lots of ways. And your word is heavy. And so I pray that you would be my backbone, that you would be my strength, that you would give strength to my spirit, to my words, and that it would be your voice that we hear this morning. Would you bless us and would you be with us as we look to your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, let me ask you a question. Can you trust Jesus even when you don't know what Jesus is doing? Can you trust Jesus even when you don't know what Jesus is doing? Stephen Brooks is the assistant pastor who's going to be coming in. And uh, I'm thinking about them a lot this week because they are loading up a moving truck and they're moving to a place where they don't really know any of us. They hardly know me. I've had conversations with them. They hardly know Rebecca. But really, probably the two people, one of three or four people in the room that they know best in this whole area. But they're packing up their kids, Emily and Micah and Carter and Randy, and they're coming down to a place they have not lived, to be in a church where they hardly know anybody. And the question comes for them is, can they trust God? And the question comes for us is, can you trust God even when you don't know what's going to happen? Can you trust God even when you don't know what God is doing? So when Rebecca and I left Clemson years ago to go to a church in another state, uh, that was, uh, we were planning to be there for 20 years, and it became very apparent very soon that this is not a place we could stay very long because uh, you hear stories about bad churches. This was kind of going on. I almost left ministry at that church, but it was shortly after a big na- kind of nasty thing happened where I was thinking, I need to get out of ministry. If this is what ministering to church is like, I'm out. And so uh, it was right after that we had a 30th anniversary for the campus ministry that I'd worked with for 20 years. And there were all these people there talking about how much God had done for them while they were involved in their ministry. And I thought, oh, wow. So God is still calling me to minister. There's something else going on. This probably just isn't the place I need to be. But going through all of that was really hard. And we didn't know where we were going to be if we left that church. But that's part of the story of this church plant. And why I'm standing in front of you today. God knew what he was doing. We didn't. So let me ask you a question. Can you trust God? Can you trust Jesus when you don't know exactly what Jesus is doing? So we step into this passage. And this passage gives us incredible confidence that even when we don't know what Jesus is doing, Jesus has a plan. And he's carrying 
it out. And the plan may, have some, it may involve some difficulty or hardship that we have to go through, but he knows that even the hardship and difficulty is necessary for the end result that he's bringing about. And if he himself, in the plan, is willing to go through ultimate pain in order to bring us ultimate joy, then I think that we can probably trust him uh, for the joys and the sorrows and the difficulties and everything that we face in life. So you want to talk about this this morning? You better, because here we go. So uh, I am following an outline this week. That's good. Okay, one, the determination of Jesus, Jesus' self-control. We read in chapter 14, verses 13 to 15. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the owner, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And that seems pretty straightforward to us if we know the story particularly, but maybe not to them. There are some things that would have caused the apostles to pause, uh, the two disciples that he was sending out, which we know from other gospel accounts that was uh, Peter and John. So Peter and John, they're hearing, Go and you're going to see a man carrying wa a water jar, a water jug. Now for them... That was a big deal because in that culture, men didn't carry jars of water. They had a little kind of skin flask they would carry around just for like a personal water supply, like a water bottle, like we drink incessantly today. They would have done that in their region. And carrying a jar of water was something only women would do in that culture. So what Jesus is saying to them is peculiar. We're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. They're not expecting that. And then, who, who this man is going to meet them, he's going to lead them to a house they've never been to, and they're going to say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And there's a guy who just happens to have this upper room all prepared for it. Now, I remember growing up, and I think I actually heard a pastor say this, this shows the supernatural foreknowledge of Jesus, that he just knows what's going to happen. But in my reading this week, most of the commentaries have a different story for this, a different understanding, and here's the understanding. is In the passage before this, we read about Judas going to the Jewish officials to say, I will hand him over. And they're looking for an opportune time when there are no crowds. And the opportune time would have been the Passover meal, when everybody's in their homes. And Jesus knows this. So he doesn't tell Judas... He doesn't let anybody know who's going to betray him where they're going to be having the Passover. So this appears to be something that Jesus has set up beforehand. So when they're looking for a jar, this is kind of like a signal. There's a man carrying a, a jar of water. And when they go to the house, this is kind of a password. The teacher, not Jesus, but the teacher says this. And so this is Jesus having prearranged this so that he can spend this last night with his apostles, with his disciples, having the Passover meal. And what this is showing us is Jesus was determined to go to the cross, but on his terms. And he was determined to explain to them through the Passover meal what was getting ready to happen to him on the cross. He needed, he wanted, he was, he was determined to have this Passover meal with his apostles so they could understand, wait a second, here, these things are paralleling one another. So I think what we see is that how in control of this Jesus is, is that, you know, we can look at John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln and look at these people and say, these are people who were taken from us before their time. 
And we could look at Jesus and say Jesus was taken from us before his time. And the reality is, is Jesus wasn't taken. Jesus gave himself for us. And that's very different as we're looking through. So Jesus knowingly went to the place where he would be betrayed and handed over and misrepresented, beaten, spit upon, and murdered. And so it's showing his determination to have a Passover meal to explain himself and his ministry. So that leads us to the second, and that's the mission of Jesus. And we see this in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is me. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So in the middle of the Passover feast, which these Jewish men had been going to and celebrating their entire lives, Jesus takes a couple of, he says some things that they didn't understand. So in the middle of breaking the bread, Jesus breaks it and he says, this is me. This is my body, snap, which is for you. And then he holds forth the cup, which we'll talk about in just a little bit too. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. So they're listening to Jesus, and they probably are thinking, I don't know why Jesus said that. Did he just get it wrong, or is he teaching something? They're probably really confused. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They didn't understand until later that Jesus was fulfilling the Passover when he was celebrating the Passover with them. So the first Passover took place on the eve of Israel's release from bondage in Egypt. The Israelites sacrificed the lamb. They painted the door frames. And anybody in the household where there was a door frame painted with the blood of the sacrificed lamb, they would be safe from the, uh, the angel of God's judgment that was going to be coming through the entire encampment, coming through all of Egypt. So anybody, whether you're Egyptian or whether you're Israelite, if you didn't have the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb over the doorpost, the first bo- your, your firstborn was going to die. So why is this significant? Why a sacrificed lamb? Well, it's because of Egypt's sins. The Lord reverses what Pharaoh did. If you go back and read in Exodus chapter 1, Exodus starts with something really sad, and that is the Israelites have grown to be such a large group of people that Pharaoh orders that the male children be killed. That's Pharaoh. That's the state. That's them saying this is what's going to happen. And so when God in the Passover says, I'm going to kill the firstborn male, he's actually, or the firstborn, he's actually being uh, more merciful because he's not just killing all of one particular sex or gender. He's actually uh, just the firstborn as punishment. So God is providing a sacrificial lamb for his people because they're just as sinful as the Egyptians. But he's providing a way for those within the houses to be protected from God's judgment that was coming upon Egypt. And the only way they could escape from the judgment of God was that was coming on Egypt and would come in the world was through our, and being forgiven, was being placed into that Passover sacrifice. And the only way that we can escape is through Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb because he's the blood of the doorframe. He's the blood of the doorpost that keeps us uh, safe within him. Our great Passover lamb has shed his blood and made us right before God forever. And when Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist called out, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So, and John the Baptist said that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, framing the whole thing. So, let me give you a picture of this. All who believe in Christ, he's the lamb upon whom the judgment fell. As I was preparing this week, I came across a really neat story. It's kind of sad, but it's a neat story in National Geographic. Years ago, there, was a, there were some forest rangers who began a trek up a mountain to survey the damage after there was a big fire in Yellowstone National Park. And as they're going around, everything is burned. And uh, they found uh, really not a lot left in terms of vegetation or animal life. And at the base of one of the trees, they found this little bird. And the little bird had been, and these are words you don't want to hear. You're like walking in the woods, carbonized in a petrified shell. That's all that was left of the bird. It was right there at the base of this tree. And so the, the park ranger was a little disturbed by this, and so he just kind of hit it with a stick. And when he hit it with the stick and the bird moved, three little chicks came out from under the bird. They had been protected from the fire because the bird had put its wings to protect its children. That's the Passover. And that's us. That's the cross is in Christ, the fire has burned him so that it won't burn us. And when we start thinking about who Jesus is, we realize that the whole Old Testament is like this. When he says, he doesn't just fulfill the Passover, but he fulfills the whole Old Testament. So when the Old Testament in Isaiah prophesies and says the virgin will be with child, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The Messiah would be the offspring of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. You go through all the predictions and promises in the Old Testament, and you realize, wait, this is really talking about Jesus. And if you're not reading the Bible, the Old Testament this way, and you're reading it just about rules and ceremonies, you're missing the scope of what the Old Testament is teaching. For instance, in Psalm 1, when he says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. I read that as if it's about me, and I'm like, well, rats. How in the world, you know, I can't be right with God if that's true. But he's not first and foremost talking about me. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord his God. And on it, he meditates day and night. And aren't I glad that he's the blood of the doorframe and I go and stand within that and I'm safe because I have the righteousness of Jesus credited to me. He's the reason I can be right and restored with God. Not because I'm the righteous man, but because Jesus is the righteous man that's being talked about throughout the entire Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is one finger pointing at Jesus and saying, look to him. Dane Orland wrote this. He said, the glory of the Bible is that there is no such a thing as an irrelevant passage because the entire scripture is a web of texts that work together to tell us of God's great plan to save the weak through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So he fulfilled the Old Testament, the covenant promises. He's the true Israel who kept all of God's law perfectly. He's the Moses that brings us out of bondage and slavery. He's the Davidic king who fights the battles for us that we couldn't fight. He's the ironic priest who takes away the sins of God's people by offering a perfect sacrifice. He's the temple where God and man meet. He's the Passover lamb in whose blood uh, we are made safe. So that's how he's taking this bread and saying, this is me. This is me. And he does something else in the Passover. He holds forth one of the cups. Now I say they're one of the cups but they're, because there are four cups 
uh, in my, I wouldn't know because I wasn't there. But there were four cups, according to the commentators, that, uh, and these four cups symbolize the words of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So if you want to go look at these later. So the first cup is called, they call the cup of sanctification. And in Exodus 6, God says, I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians. So I'm setting you apart as holy. The, there's the cup of judgment. I will deliver you from bondage to them and bring judgment upon them. There's the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then there's the cup of praise. I will take you out of that and I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Now, most commentators, as you're looking at this account in Mark and the other Gospels, they think that the first two cups had already been drunk by the, the apostles and by Jesus. And so it's the third cup. The third cup, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. So Jesus is taking the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he's holding this forward and saying, this is my blood of the covenant. Now, what's significant about this as well is in the Old Testament, when it talks about the blood of the covenant, whenever there was a covenant that was established, it had to be ratified by sacrificing an animal. So if you can think about when God made his covenant with Abraham, is God had Abraham cut these animals, and he made basically a lane of animals. And Abraham and, Moses, and, Abraham and God were to walk between the pieces of these animals to ratify this covenant, and through bloodshed would the, the covenant be ratified. But in that case, only two images for God, a, a, a torch and a smoking fire pot, passed between the pieces. God saying, Abraham, you can't keep this. I'm going to keep the covenant. And when you fail, it's going to fall upon me. What Jesus is communicating here is, yes, God's people failed the first covenant. But I'm taking the wrath and judgment for all the covenants upon me. And I'm establishing a new covenant in my blood. And this covenant is saying that I have paid already. It's not on you. It's on me. I will take all of your debt on myself. All of your sin, all the judgment for your sin will fall on me. And all the blessings of this covenant will fall on you. So that we get what Jesus deserves and he took what we deserved. So this is what, uh, you may have heard a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this. He said, what is the gospel? It is this. That God has sent his son into the world to save sinners and to crush hell, overcome death, to take away sin and satisfy the law. But what must you do? Nothing but accept this and look up to your redeemer and firmly believe that he has done all this for your good and freely gives you all as your own. So in the Exodus, God comes to the Israelites and says, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. And in Jesus, God comes to, and sa comes to us and he says, I'm going to rescue you from everything. Everything that oppresses, everything that harms, your sin, I'm going to rescue you from it all. And so what Jesus gives us is not just that picture of this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, but he refrains from the last cup. Do you notice that he said uh, in the passage, he says, I will not drink. This is in verse... It happens if you don't have your reading glasses on. Thank you. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus forgoes the fourth cup, which is the cup of consummation. And what he's promising is, someday 
one day when everybody is gathered in, then we, all of us again, will drink this cup and how beautiful that will be. Isn't that a great image? It's a promise to us. Timothy Keller, some of you may have heard of him too, he said, uh, he wrote, when Jesus announces that he will not eat or drink until he meets us in the kingdom of God, Jesus is promising that he is unconditionally committed to us. I am going to bring you into the Father's arms. I am going to bring you to the feast of the King. So, can you trust Jesus when you aren't sure what Jesus is doing? When you don't know what Jesus is doing, can you trust him? It can be really, really hard in the moment to trust him. So these are four things I have had to learn for me. And there are four things I think are found in this text and others. So let me give you these four things you can tell yourself. Number one, Jesus has gone through the worst for me. In love, he took my sin so I can completely trust him. Things might get hard and difficult in my life here, but the, the worst thing, that's off the table because I have Jesus. I will never face what I truly deserve. Number two, Jesus has a plan for you, unknown to you, and he calls you to obey him and trust. Go and find the man with the jar of water. I don't even know what that looks like because that's not part of our cultural thing. So Jesus has a plan. He just may not have told you, but he knows how this is working out. And I'm in the middle of it, and I don't see the end yet. Number three, Jesus has promised to be with us in the midst of it, and we can be in no safer hands. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So even if you're going through something really difficult and really hard, Jesus promises to be with you. And here's the fourth. Though things may be hard in the moment, we are promised a happy ending. There's a mandatory happy ending for everybody who's in Christ. Everything will make sense at the end. Everything we've hoped for, we will find at the end. And, we, and joy of joys, we will find ourselves there at the end with Jesus able to celebrate in joy and thanksgiving. Okay, so we have the grace of Jesus given to us as needy people. Jesus stepping into our brokenness. So how do we respond to this? One is certainly by receiving it and saying, okay, this is for me. But we see something broader here. We see Jesus not just talking to us as individuals. We see Jesus in verse 24 talking to us as people. One, he's, he's celebrating this with his disciples, but in verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So what Jesus is intending at this point is for what he's telling his apostles in the upper room is intended for all of us, which is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, taking these elements. And it wouldn't have been great if we had planned to do that today, but it's not the day of the month we usually do that. So, so next week, next week we can do it. Um, but understand what Jesus is saying. It, Jesus is establishing a covenant for his people in blood. And none of us here is here because we accomplished it. We're here because Jesus has accomplished it. And that means that none of us is here because we deserve to be here. And it means that there are people, not in this room, who don't deserve to be here, but Jesus may call to be in here. And what that means for us is we may be the means by which calls, Jesus calls the many who may not be here to be here. 
in the room with us. To have those conversations that in our culture have become very awkward uh, and sometimes a little bit threatening. To say, I need to have this conversation with this person because, uh, and we should have a diversity of people in here. It's for the many. So again, another writer said this. He said, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. <laughs> a band of natural, yeah. So I hate y'all, but I love you at the same time in Jesus. That's not true. Um, so what's keeping us from that? Um, I come across a lot of things uh, in my reading. And uh, one of the things I've come across, just because I, I struggle with this too, is, uh, and right now all of your eyes are on me, Right? So if anybody in this room is thinking this right now, it's me, right? And you think, people are thinking about me right now. So when I go out in public and I'm walking around Brownwood, I'm very aware people are, are they looking at me? I'm really insecure about this. And so I was reading something that said, people are not thinking about you nearly as much as you were thinking about yourself, right? And so, and which is really true, but we're constantly thinking about ourselves the way that we're thinking about uh, my, the way I think about my back or the way I think about my knees. I can't help but be aware about, of my knees and my back because there's something wrong with them, right? They hurt all the time. Why do I think about myself all the time? Because I hurt. There's something about me that makes me think people are looking at me. I was watching a movie. This is years ago. I can't recommend this movie. It was when I was a little less selective about movies, but it's a movie called The Station Agent. Uh, if you've seen it, um, if you can tolerate they they're fast-forwardable scenes. Uh, watch the television version again. And uh, the, the lead person in the movie is, is named Peter Dinklage. Uh, that's, his, that's the name of the actor. If, uh, if you watched another thing, you shouldn't have watched Game of Thrones. He's in that. He's the dwarf in that. I didn't watch that. And uh, here's another thing I didn't watch. I didn't, yeah. Um, so Peter Dinklage is in this, and he plays a man who in real life has dwarfism. He's a recluse because he hates the way people look at him all the time. They just, he's, he's, he's an anomaly. Like people just look at him and stare in public and he hates that. So he's made a life for himself as a recluse working in a little toy train shop, a little hobby shop. And the owner of the train shop passes away and Peter Dinklage has nowhere else to go, but this guy has left him. He actually owns an old train station in an old, another town, and that's going to be Peter Dinklage's new home. So he walks along the railroad track and tries to make a new home there, but he doesn't know anybody. He wants to be reclusive. There's a very talkative salesperson in town who kind of befriends him, and there's a woman, and I think her name's Sylvia, and Sylvia is just kind of this kind of klutzy woman uh, that's there in town, and Peter Dinklage's character just tolerates her. He doesn't really like her, but he just tolerates her, he, just like he tolerates everybody else because she just looks at him. There are a couple of incidences where she, like, almost hits him with a car or something. Like, she's always, she's just kind of klutzy. And uh, he ends up talking to her and having a conversation, and he finds out her story. Is a couple of years ago, her young child was killed in kind of a freak playground accident. And she said... I hate that people look at me as the woman whose child died on the playground. 
And she said, don't look at me. It was fascinating. Like, because I realized that's kind of the way we see other people a lot of times, is we don't see the brokenness, or we see brokenness in terms of me and what I'm dealing with. But what's interesting is the movie goes on, and he began to see her as a real person. He began to be friends with her, and she began to be friends with him. And he was able to see past himself to begin to have community with other people. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel is the gospel doesn't just enable us to say, wait, everybody's broken and everybody's sinful. Everybody's in the same boat as I am. They're busy with their own stuff and not me, but the gospel heals us enough to where we can actually step beyond ourselves and say, I've been healed. I've got someone who sees everything about me to the core, sees things about me I do not see, but loves me. And he went to the cross for me. Because he loved me. So if I can say anything is true of me, it's that I'm loved. I'm loved despite who I am. I'm loved despite my brokenness. Um, So what we end up doing is comforting other people with the comfort that we ourselves have received. I've received this love from Jesus and I share that with other people. It means that we step into other people's lives and say, Jesus could not be with you here today physically. So he sent me. He saved me so that I would come to you and help you shoulder your burden. And that's not easy. It's hard. But he's given us the ability to be able to do that because we have his spirit, we have his promises, and we have the strength of knowing that someday, one day, we're going to drink that cup again. So how are we able to do this? Well, Jesus says, this is me. Snap. I will nourish you. I will strengthen you. This is my body. This is the blood of a new covenant. This is me saying I'm taking away the sting of death for all of my people and I'm taking away that shame that you feel by saying my love overwhelms that shame. Jesus gives us the ability to live a new life, new life in him. So let me pray for us. I have a really good imagination, Lord Jesus. I can picture things, but I know this to be true. My imagination of what that great day will be when you return is nothing compared to the glory of what it will be. But I pray that even that little, that little sliver of light that gets into my soul, I pray that even that would enable me to say what's coming is so good that it overwhelms any sorrow or pain or struggle or difficulty I feel right now. And I know that my imagination is only, only just a sliver to be able to understand your suffering and your death on the cross 2,000 years ago. I can, picture the, I can picture the physical pain, but I cannot picture the spiritual suffering that you went to, through for my sake. And my soul wants to say to you, if you go to that cross, you will die. But I hear your spirit saying, but if I don't go to that cross, you will die but I've come so that you might live. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would enable me to see your love, to see your glory, to see all of these things, that they would overwhelm my fears, my guilt, my struggle, my anxiety, all these burdens I carry around so that they would be light and momentary in light of the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Bless me and bless all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.